0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Last Bite podcast where we find out what people's final meal would be if they only had one day left on earth. I'm Connor Braggart and with me today is a man who can strike fear into anyone in the MasterChef kitchen just by walking in the room. He's also a writer for The Telegraph and host of Sitwell's Supper Club. It is the amazing food critic, William Sitwell. It's lovely to have you on. How are you doing? Thank you very much. What a very nice, generous
1: introduction. (laughs) Um, Complete nonsense, of course. I don't, I don't strike fear into the heart of anybody, uh, except my dog when he's bad, when he's misbehaving,
0: but um, (laughs) sounds good anyway, it's lovely to chat with you, Connor. It's lovely to have you on, and I'm I'm sure you definitely strike uh, fear into the people in the Master Chief Kitchen, honestly, they always look excited when you come in, but honestly, I think deep down they're like, oh no.
1: I think it's actually because they film someone else walking in, so they do the, they do that shot, and
0: then I walk in, and uh, there's probably no one in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, how did you get into like the food writing sort of industry? I can't imagine it's something that's really easy to sort of get into, especially at your level.
1: Yeah, I know it's a, it's a good question that and. I mean, looking back on it, it feels more direct. But in reality, it was very circuitous and uh, uh, not deliberate. And, you know, there are people who have an absolute driving ambition to become food writers, and they say, how do I do it? And I can kind of give them the benefit of some of my, my knowledge I've built up over the years and hope I can guide them. Um, and an adjunct to that is that the great late restaurant critic and food writer Charles Campion, his line on when he was asked, how do you become a food writer? He would say, well, look, there are more Formula One drivers lining up on the grid than there are mainstream food writers, critics for the the big kind of newspapers. So you're probably more likely to become an F1 driver than a food writer. And I don't think he meant that. We didn't mean it arrogantly. It's just that when you've, got, when you've only got a few small slots. And if we're talking about, you know, newspaper restaurant critics, and that's a big argument that we're no longer, you know, as important, and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to admit that, it is hard when you're going for a few, for a few sort of narrow opportunities. Um, I never intended to be a restaurant critic. I never intended to be a food writer. I always quite liked the idea of writing I come from a family of writers, not that that was really relevant, but I suppose it helps push you forward when you're thinking about it. I'm, I'm sitting in a room surrounded by books, many of which have written by my forebears who were poets and writers. I mean, my grandfather, Sir Chevrolet Sitwell, wrote over 130 books. Now you might say that actually that's a discouragement because there's no way you could beat that. Or you might go, well, if butcher is in the family, you could become a butcher, a plumber, and then maybe a writer. So. I, in my sort of late teens, having been a fairly useless student, I think I did enjoy writing, and I enjoyed sort of the, the feeling of pleasure one got out of constructing a decent sentence. And I was taught quite well to write essays by a wonderful man called Barnaby Lennon who taught me geography, and, and, and the, the technique of structure was really important. And then I sort of fell into newspapers, Um I kind of thought it would be quite fun to work for a newspaper. And I started writing, I joined the sort of gossip columns, the diaries, such as the Peterborough column, as it was on the Telegraph, the London's Diary and the Standard, in the days where the gossip columns, the diaries had rather more sort of kudos and presence than they, than they do now. And so sort of by mistake, I kind of meandered uh, and found myself given the odd opportunity which I then sort of really fought for and to cut a long story short I was offered the I went for the job as deputy editor of a magazine called Waitrose Food Illustrated in 1999 having worked in newspapers and it was a magazine I hadn't heard of and a friend of mine who was a food writer it's quite well known cookery writer suggested I become deputy and I interviewed for the job not really knowing anything about food and I somehow got it I didn't say much in the interview I remember the lady asked me so what do you know about food and I said well I eat and then she sort of spent the next two hours talking but then offered me the job as deputy so I kind of got into that role and then she quit a few years later and I realized that this was actually a real opportunity um, to merge my passion for writing with a great subject because I was always told you need a subject as a writer it helps you it's good to be pigeonholed you know you're the motoring correspondent, the beer correspondent, the political person. So it's quite good to have a go-to thing, and I'd never had a go-to subject. And there was the role of editor that was in the offing, and I thought, right, I go for that, or I, and if I lose, someone else comes in, gets that job, and I'm the person who didn't get the main job, and I languish as deputy, or go and try and find something else to do. And I really realised this is a really important path for me that I might go down to, and I threw every single thing I had at this, and managed to manage to get it in spite of my lack of experience and so on and I remember when I got it I was sort of told you need to go on management courses and you need to learn about you know running people and so on I thought oh my god anyway I realized at that point that food was the most amazing subject and it's what I've then sort of managed to do slightly spreading my wings in the ensuing 20 years and that food is about Culture, politics, history, geography, climate, health, love, entertainment, happiness. I mean, it is about everything. And it's a single subject that is the most multitudinous, fantastic, diverse subject, from the food industry and hospitality to farming to opinion. And to be part of that, commissioning pieces as an editor, writing pieces now as more as a writer for The Telegraph, writing books, doing talks. It's the most phenomenal thing. So if someone says, how do I become a food writer? My advice is very firmly try and become a journalist, try and become a writer. You have to learn the structure that I suppose I started to learn at school with my geography essays that I honed a bit as a diary writer because every little diary nugget has a beginning, middle and an end and color and an intro, a quote, an outro, a summary, and that's the rules whether it's 75 words whether it's 1200 or whether it's a book of 80 90000 words so structure and then really importantly for a young writer's understanding the balance of colour but not overdoing it not being too flowery you can sort of smell an amateur too many you know adjectives and trying to overcolor stuff so it's that sort of subtle middle road and then the, then it's just experience the more you do it the more you do it and just writing, 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 and also never stop reading. It's very difficult these days. There's so much media out there. Read books, read the great English novelists, even a more P.G. Woodhouse. I mean, no one gets someone in and out of a room better than even a more P.G. Woodhouse. It's a really interesting thing if you watch those characters, how someone brings someone into a room, how they open the door, step in, look around, speak, and what's left to the imagination. So, you need the the rigors of journalism the interest in people the experience of writing and doing it and the ambition to try and keep on hammering away to try and get to where you want to do where you want to go when you get offered the opportunity to work as hard as you can to get those get those chances if life leaves you down another avenue go for it but also don't spend too much time doing something and you aren't quite enjoying as a stopgap. I remember speaking to a girl who's she was packed, she came to see me in the office years ago and she said, I, I just really want to make chocolate. And I said, What are you doing? So well, I'm working at the moment in a dentist surgery as an assistant. And I said, Well, you need to stop that and make chocolate. And you've got to be bold enough and you need to risk early. So she went away, quit that and started making chocolate. And now she's quite a well known chocolatier. So, you know. It's that balance between worrying about, you know, I've got to earn a living, but going down an avenue where you're not doing what you want to do. So risk early,
0: don't leave it too late. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great piece of advice to almost everyone It's sort of like, it's almost capturing your own passion in a way to sort of go, right, yeah. I, I, I want this, I need this, let's work out a way of making it work.
1: If you can avoid living for the weekend, I think that's a great ambition. (laughs) If you can love Monday to Friday, if you can wake up and look forward to your work, that's one of the greatest things you can do in life, to love what you're doing at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning rather than thinking, how do I get through to having a good time at the weekend? Because otherwise you spend most of your life dragging yourself through drudgery in order to just try and have fun if you can try and enjoy what you do then you know your life will be so much more enhanced I appreciate it's a very difficult ask but you know when you're passionate about your job it does make life easier you know and then so the tough times are easier because at least it's tough in an area in which you're interested
0: in (laughs) That that will just sort of move you sort of forwards through those tougher times if 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 you yeah. absolutely love um, what you're doing and knowing that sort of tomorrow is going to be better because you are enjoying what you're doing. Um yeah. But I I think that's brilliant. So to, to any people who are inspired to do what you do, I think that those are great pieces of advice to sort of take on. Use your contact
1: shamelessly. You know, if you meet someone who knows someone. You know, get those introductions, go and beat on people's door, ask people, can I have 10 minutes of your time? When I was an editor, and if someone wrote in and said, or, or emailed, can, can I come and get some advice? I'd tell my PA, I don't have one anymore, but have one then. Look, we'll give them five minutes, 10 minutes. And I think people who are in good positions in businesses and running it, you know, whether they're food businesses or hospitality, should always have 10 minutes for young people to give them advice. And I often found it more interesting speaking to them about what they were up to, learning from them, you know, how's the world looking from your angle? And then you'd speak to them and give them a bit of advice, try and steer them in the right direction. So if you come across anyone who knows someone, you know, write to people, say, can I have have five minutes of your time? I'll come to your office, I'll wait for a day, I'll have 10 minutes, you never know. It's always useful, just, and also particularly in the digital age where we spend our lives looking at our phones, tweeting at people and putting things on Instagram. There's moments when you actually look in someone's eye, you know, get out there. You know, you can't just operate remotely. Go and meet people. Because if you do that, there's a lot of other people who won't do that. And you'll be a step ahead of them. Don't be worried about annoying people on the subject of, <laughs> of what you're interested in. Because you've got, it's a lot of competition. If you want to be, if you want to operate in the world of food media, be
0: shameless and trying to get get ahead, you know. So, without further ado, I think it's time to find out what your last bite would be. Now, for people who haven't seen seen this before, haven't seen anything on the last bite, the last bite is where we go for, I guess, final starter, main course, dessert, and drink. What that would be if it was their final day on Earth, and. I mean, it's in the title of, of the dish. Um, the starter, I think, is what we'll start with, right? I'm in a,
1: a restaurant that's uh, a combination of all my favourite places. And I'm with, uh, am I allowed to have friends around the table? I mean, I think that's allowed, isn't it? Or oh, my wife is going to be with me, certainly. But a bunch of mates. So, you know, the drinks are really important because we've got to get, we've got to whet the appetite a long, You know, a long way before we get to the starter. And actually, if I'm slightly hungover, which maybe I will be, I might have a little dark Coke with, with a nice slice of lemon, bit of fizz just to stir me. A and little bit of sugar
0: as well in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I actually think the best time to drink champagne is at about noon. It tastes better when your palate is fresh. And also, if, if it's a Wednesday, let's say, and I'm intermittent fasting and I therefore haven't had breakfast, maybe I've only had coffee. So the th- first... Serious thing to pass my lips would be a glass of really nice champagne. I think probably a really decent champagne, like a a glass of Krug. That'll kind of wake up my taste buds. If we're going to sit down, certainly I'm going to go through the wine list and have some white burgundy. Um, A really lovely French Chardonnay, not too old, reasonably crisp. And then there's going to be a whole series of starters, right? I think i quite like to have a cheese souffle in there because it's a lovely sort of, um, you know, airy dish to, to begin with. I think also while I'm having that glass of champagne, we need to have a bit of a nibble. I'm going to have some pistachio nuts. Is that allowed? That's before we get into the cheese souffle.
0: I mean, okay. I, mean, I mean, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. A little, like, extra little thing on the side of the starter. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. Then I need some raw fish,
1: okay, after that cheese souffle. So I think some raw langoustine. Maybe some uh, some raw scallops, really fresh, zesty, delicious. So that's that's what we then go into. So that's so we've had we've had a souffle and we've had some sashimi. That's where we're at so far.
0: I that sounds lovely so far. Like a nice little that's array, good. a few few little bits and pieces rather than one big sort of starter. It's a few little Very things. Sweet. And then as we kind of get
1: towards the main course, I'm thinking I need to have some marinated lamb chops. Um, which are going to be cooked pink in a tandoor and they're marinated rather like sort of otolenghi might with sort of ginger and lime and coriander and a light oil and they're probably marinated overnight in the fridge and then they're put into a tandoor where they're cooked relatively quickly so they're slightly charred but very much pink in the middle and then on the side I think as a sort of uh a kind of tipping my cap to one of my favorite cuisines which is Indian uh we might just have a light few lentils just with that so it's a really delicious lamb chop very pink
0: very tender charred bit of spice and some lentils that sounds lovely so far like I mean like obviously during your sort of time as like a food critic and stuff going to all these different places where's sort of the best place that you've had a lamb chop
1: so there's one place in the world that I really remember the best lamb chops. And it was, there's an amazing little island called Langkawi, which is in Malaysia. Um, and they had an Indian restaurant in the sort of middle of the jungle of this resort um, called uh, the Datai. It's one of the greatest hotels in the world. And there in the jungle was this little Indian restaurant. And I definitely, I had one of those moments where you have a dish that is so good, it sort of moves you moves you to tears and i've had that a few times in my life there was a i remember once i was in a restaurant in paris in a place called clown bar where i had some tempura of i think it was langoustine uh that were just so tender so wonderful it was such a wonderful moment that it kind of moved me and then there was a plate of pasta in a restaurant a little place called i can't even remember uh, ripiana pasta pasta ripiena ripiana in bristol it was just the most beautifully tender, well-cooked pasta, dish after dish, and that, you know, made me sort of well up. When you feel the passion of the people who are cooking for you, and also it's a wonderful moment, great occasion. I'm not someone who aches for massively sophisticated food and huge tasting menus. If you can just have a simple dish where Mother Nature is sort of uh, just dealt with tenderly, Mm. you know, it really means something, and the occasion is really enhanced by the food that that I think is that's the most important thing so by the way we're moving from the lamb and I've got an idea that I wouldn't have thought a couple of weeks ago because a friend of mine down here in Somerset and I live off Exmoor Mm -hmm. he's a farmer this guy called Dan and he has a company called Westcott Organics although I think he's renaming it the wonky farmer anyway he breeds everything from chickens to, to sheep to longhorn cattle and i've had some of his um some of his pigs and he's got these wonderful organic pig cheeks that were sitting in my freezer which i cooked at the weekend and they're going to have to be now on my my uh, my menu for this last meal because they were so astonishingly good but you've got to cook it but i'm going to cook this or someone's going to have to cook this <laughs> these pig cheeks in the way that i'm doing them it's when I eat meat like that, I think, my God, thank God I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> I, you know, I'm no I have total respect for veggies and vegans, despite what people might think. But I don't understand where they get that visceral joy from from roasting a parsnip or something. The, the, the joy you get from eating well produced, lovingly cared for meat that's been cooked beautifully in a wonderful oven like a Traeger, just nothing beats that. I mean, I'm I'm willing to be you know to have my mind changed but anyway so we're going to have some yeah we're going to have some little uh, some slices of organic pig cheek from Westcott organics after we've had the lamb we're going to have some potatoes as well there so i think we're going to have to have some dofinals potatoes i think we need a bit of greenery so let's have some purple sprouting broccoli preferably cooked, plucked from my garden because i'm growing a few of those and i would like some asparagus as well
0: if that's all right <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that sounds great to me. I mean, a little touch of home in there as well um, with your homegrown <laughs> vegetables.
1: But what we might have is a glass of Pinot Noir with the uh, lamb and then probably a big fat glass of a Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot blend, a good big fat one in a different big glass, a really classic Bordeaux, um, and that'll help the pig cheeks go down and also, that red can sustain us for when we have the cheese, which uh, which 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 we're going to have after the pudding, by the way, not before, because <sighs> I want. I quite like it when you do French-style cheese before pudding, yeah. but actually, in this circumstance, because we need this meal to go on for as long as possible before I get executed or whatever it is, <laughs> we're going to have a pudding, which obviously is going to be a self-sourcing chocolate fondant. Oh, very so, nice. So. Um, really good, high-quality chocolate, some nice fresh eggs, whisked in with some caster sugar, a little bit of vanilla essence. Um, And then, you know, the chocolate turned in, a little bit of sieved flour, and then, you know, cooked just right for about 14 minutes at about 180, so that the tops are just rising, and they turn out, and they're beautiful. And then, I think, either a dob of (laughs) Cornish-clotted cream or just some... Just some, uh, just some double cream. I think I'll allow myself a sauternes, a sauternes, a really lovely pudding wine mm. um, to go along with that. So that's where we are at pudding. Then we're having cheese, okay? And I think sometimes cheese boards are far too large and 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 confusing and elongated. So I think the simple cheese boards are the best, where you've literally got a couple of hard ones, like a cheddar and maybe a cave age gruyere or a comte. And then one big fat uh, oozing brie that's probably nearly the end at the end of its life, or um, a stinking bishop or something. So a big smelly cheese that you can almost pour, and then a good solid. It's li- I love a really simple cheddar, mm. cathedral city. I'm very happy with that. Yeah. Nothing too sophisticated and not too aged, because otherwise it's a bit too acrid and bitter. Um, And some very nice, um, some good biscuits. I like tuck biscuits.
0: Do you know know what?
1: My dad is the exact same. He has tucks all the time. (laughs) I don't know if it stands for Trade Union Council. I don't know, but I love those. And uh, are we allowed a glass of port? 91. Why not? Wars, I think we'll have a glass of port. And then, um, you know, the lunch is sort of depressingly coming to an end. So we'll have some Calvados at this point to perk perk us up. And because it's my last lunch, I'll probably land myself a cigar because I'm not going to wake up the next morning with a horrible taste in my mouth. <laughs> so with a with a big fat cigar, with some glasses of Calvados, with all my friends around the table, roaring with laughter. Um, and then if there's a swimming pool, I'm going to jump into it. <laughs> I quite like swimming when I'm pissed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, it, uh, I mean that's going to be great. Everyone in the swimming pool after a nice meal with all these different drinks, uh, all throughout the meal, everyone's going to have a great time. It's just me
1: in the pool. There's no one else. I'm just no one else.
0: else. It's, it's just, just yeah. slowly drowning,
1: <laughs>
0: just sort of going down
1: and coming up from air an and floating, and um, hoping that the worst won't be too terrible.
0: That is one hell of a meal. I have to say that is like. Like, every time you, every meal you mention it, I was like, oh, I can imagine that. Like, I could imagine each and every one of them. Like, oh. And it, it, it's rather simple as well. It wasn't, not even that complicated, just very simple meals that just taste amazingly well. I can cook, I can probably cook
1: all of that stuff actually. Um, not too sophisticated. I wouldn't be very good actually with the, the sashimi. Mm. Um there's a wonderful man called Yoshi Ishii who used to be the chef of Umu in Mayfair. He's now got a restaurant just outside Tokyo. He's one of the greatest Japanese chefs living. I'll fly him in to cut my longuistines scallops and dress them. In fact, I'll, I'll eat whatever he's got actually. <laughs> he's got knife, but there's not much left of them. They've been so sharpened over the years. And when he takes his knives out of the sheaths and he's at the chef's, uh, he's at this sort of counter, it's like it's sort of it's like an altar. It's like a ceremony. It's like a priest preparing his preparing communion, the various sort of uh, religious instruments. Uh, it's uh, magical. Yeah. So we'll fly in Yoshi to do the. Um, he'll be on sashimi
0: yeah that just sounds amazing that really does i mean i think we're pretty much running out of time here so that's that's it for the episode of this of the last bite thank you for joining me that was like genuinely so interesting to hear you speak about all all those different foods and like how you would sort of cook them and like the little pairings of the drinks as well like i mean it's been it's been a pleasure Great. Well, it's been lovely sharing with you, Connor. Thank you so much. No, no. And if our listeners want to follow you beyond this point, where can they sort of find you on like social media and stuff to keep up with what you're doing? Well, I'll be dead, won't I? So, um, Well, well be-
1: <laughs> in the theoretical oh. world, <laughs> hopefully not now. <laughs> uh, at
0: William Sitwell, williamsitwell.com. Well, uh, make sure to contact us on our Instagram at Behind the Bite Mag of what you thought of Williams' last bite uh, today, and while you're there, follow the link over to the website as well as check out all the amazing content that we're doing and we're putting out um obviously make sure to leave us a rating over on spotify apple podcasts or whatever other podcast service you are using thank you all very much for listening uh to me and listening to william as well and we shall see you all next week on the last Bite. goodbye